I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're also going to be talking about the rising numbers of the pandemic. In addition to the, well, we're really not sure what it is right now, but uh, we're hoping that Congress can get a stimulus package uh, passed very soon because hardworking Americans are struggling right now. And then later on in the podcast, we have a very special guest with us, the author of The Great Influenza, and also the book about Roger Williams, The Soul of American Liberty. John Barry is with us, and you will not want to miss that interview. So stay tuned. Autumn, how are things over in your neck of the woods? Things are going well. We just, you know, are humming along. We can see Christmas on the horizon. I'm feeling sort of a, an extra incentive to hurry and get my Christmas shopping done because I feel like it's not really safe to just run out and grab some last minute things, which right. means I'm having to prepare. How are you doing Christmas shopping? That That's a great question uh, yeah. or topic. How are you doing Christmas shopping this year? So I'm doing my very best to support small businesses. We have a local toy store that we always love to go to with the kids. Of course, we're not going there this year, but I am doing some curbside pickup there. Um, I love to shop on Etsy because that's all, you know, mostly handmade individuals. And so doing as much of that as I can. And then, you know, I'm going to be supporting some Jeff Bezos uh, with some last minute <laughs> things here too. Yeah. He, he, he needs to upgrade his yacht. Bless his heart. He's just See? struggling. I mean, You've seen the economy. I mean, he's just, he's having a hard time Poor Jeff. He is. Yeah, he really is. But you know, we have kids, so we have to make it magical. Yeah. Well, because of all of this adapting of Christmas shopping, the reason for that is the staggering, and I mean staggering numbers that are escalating due to COVID-19. Uh, just this week, uh, we hit record levels once again with infections as well as death. On Wednesday, it was announced Thursday that Wednesday's numbers were over 3,000 uh, died in the U.S. Um, in other countries, the numbers continue to escalate as well. Now, there is hope on the horizon and that a vaccine has been approved in the U.K., uh, a few other countries, and hopefully by the end of this week, uh, the FDA here in the United States will give the okay for the first uh, vaccines. But the reality is it's going to be a long time before the average Joe uh, gets inoculated just because of the enormity of getting the vaccine out there, uh, getting you know people, there's, I think it's a two-dose uh, vaccine. And so it's, it's going to be complicated. So the virus is still going to be around here for quite some time and people are still going to be facing uh, infections and, and unfortunately the ramifications of those infections as well. So well, and that's the, even the folks that we can convince to get the vaccine, because even that is politicized right now. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Oklahoma, I, I know that you were uh, front and center on the day of prayer and fasting uh, for the, uh, for combating the virus um, now we're not here in Oklahoma. We don't have a mass mandate because I mean, that would just be silly, uh, mm -hmm. to do something practical like that, but fasting, especially, uh, you know, that's, that's how we're going to combat this thing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of, of rhetoric thrown around and not a lot of action. So thankfully you and I both live in a city where there is a mask mandate. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there aren't people running around with their nostrils above their masks, which guess what folks that's connected to your lungs. Yep. So 
you know, what yeah. are you going to do? You know, and interesting, later on in the pod uh, with our interview uh, with John Barry, at the end of that interview, he talks about four things that people should do right now, even with the potential of the vaccine. Uh, to help combat this virus. And some of them are very familiar, but there's one that maybe not so familiar to people. Uh, but uh, John says it's just as important uh, to, to practice that as well, to, to keep this thing under control, at least within the households that we live in. So, uh, so we want to stay tuned for, for our interview with John Barry. Well, another depressing issue has been our Congress's, our lame duck Congress's inability to pass any kind of stimulus package. That's offensive to ducks, I just have to say. <laughs> There's some ducks over here going, listen, I've already had this thing solved. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, ducks are a lot more productive from what I understand than Congress. <laughs> things go through things go through ducks a lot faster than they go through Congress. <laughs> but the outcome sometimes is the same. <laughs> You know, it's not so very different. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of opinions about what should be in the stimulus package, and I just don't know if there's going to be one at all. I don't either, and it's so frustrating. This should be, this should have bipartisan support from both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you would think that people from both sides could sit down in a room and come to some kind of understanding uh, and just stay true to who they are but at the same time, do what's best for the American people. And to this mm -hmm. point, they have been unable to do so. And you and I know families, we know individuals who have lost their jobs, who are unemployed, who are trying to figure out what the next move is. We have seen it on uh, television, seen pictures, uh, photos in newspapers. There are growing lines of, of uh, at food pantries, people needing food. Uh, I mean, we are we're facing even even though the stock market is going through the roof, a majority of Americans that affects them not whatsoever. Yeah, and they need real tangible ways in which they can feed their families and work. They want to work. They want to get back to work. Everybody wants this. We have to balance the combating of the virus with an economic reality that there needs to be a stimulus package that is, uh, that is tangible, realistic, but at the same time covering the needs of the American people. This, again, we have said it before, we say it again, this is the most prosperous country that has ever been on the face of this planet. Why, during a time of dire constraints, that we cannot do what is right, what is ethical, and what is just for the people of this country who work tirelessly and pay taxes tirelessly to this country. It's time that we understand that we are in this together that it is a government by the people and, and get this, for the people, especially mm. in perilous times like we are in today. So come on, Congress, get your duck stuff together. <laughs> Let's get something produced and out the door because American people are suffering and they need, they need some economic hope. Absolutely.
Well, stay tuned. We've got a really nice interview with John Barry. Uh, Not only is John a prolific author, but he was also asked by both the Bush administration and Obama administration to help prepare for a coming pandemic. And look at here, we're in the middle of one. So stay tuned. John Barry's next. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we have a very special guest with us. John Barry is a prize-winning and New York Times bestselling author whose books have won multiple awards. The National Academies of Sciences named his 2004 book, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, that year's outstanding book on science and medicine. In 2004, John began working with the National Academies and several federal government entities on influence and preparedness and response, and he was a member of the original team which developed plans for mitigating a pandemic by using non-pharmaceutical interventions, i.e. public health measures to take before a vaccine becomes available. Both the Bush and Obama administrations sought his advice on influence and preparedness and response, and he continues his activity in this area. His latest book is Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church and State and the Birth of Liberty. And it's because of this book that John and, actually, John and I actually became acquainted. Before becoming a writer, John coached football at high school, small college, and major college levels. He is currently a distinguished scholar at Tulane's Bywater Institute and a professor of the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine and lives in New Orleans. John Barry, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks very much. That was a mouthful of an introduction. <laughs> well, I pared it down. I mean, you've got so left? you've got so many accolades uh, that it was hard to pare down. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we really appreciate you being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks. So, John, I'm sure when you wrote um, your book in 2004, The Great Influenza, you probably had no idea, or maybe you did sort of know there would eventually be another pandemic coming, um, but maybe you didn't know it would be so close. You know, within 16 years' time, a pandemic would sweep the world. Um, So tell us why you were interested in the 1918 pandemic back in the early 2000s. Well, I actually started the book in 97. Uh, It took me seven years. Uh, I don't, oddly enough, had originally planned to write a book on the home front in World War I, not on the pandemic. Mm. Uh, The pandemic was a small part of that book. Uh, But to make a long story short, it obviously became the entire book. I did have, when I was a kid, there was only two things I wanted to do. And one was medical research and the other was become a writer. So I wasn't entirely foreign to it. And I did co-author a book, uh, my second book called The Transformed Cell with uh, uh, Dr. Steven Rosenberg, who is the chief of the surgery branch of the National Cancer Institute and who was one of the greatest pioneers in the world in terms of developing immunotherapy. Um, so that knowledge of the immune system that I picked up from that book and of the scientific process being in his lab for more than a year uh, certainly was a major for the the influenza book would have been a very different book if I hadn't had that background. Yeah. But in terms of expecting a pandemic, I think anybody who knows anything about infectious disease uh, knows that pandemics are inevitable. 
we had on influenza at least 11 in the last 300 years. Um, we had one in 57, we had one in 68. Uh, nothing like uh, 1918, of course. Uh, and we had one in 2009 that it, prior to molecular biology probably would have passed without any notice uh, if it had happened historically. Uh, you know, Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, when he left CDC, was asked what kept him up at night. And what, he always said, it's influenza. It's always the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, so we all expect, and, and everybody ex expected pandemics. The question is, when? Yeah. Uh, and precisely what virus? This turns out, obviously, not to be an influenza virus, but a very similar virus. It's respiratory, transmits the same way, and so forth. And even the pathology, which is very unusual, is remarkably like the 1918 pathology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, John, I have to admit that I purchased uh, The Great Influenza after reading your most recent book about Roger Williams and uh, hearing you lecture about uh, that excellent, excellent book. And in fact, it sat on my bookcase for several years before uh, being inspired by 2020 to pick it up and read it. And I am so glad I did. Let me begin by saying this book is so incredibly well-researched and constructed. I had a hard time putting it down. In the first chapters, you begin to, by discussing the emergence of what I will call modern medicine uh, back, you know, at, you know, 1910, or basically the turn of the century. Um, can you expand on what was happening in the medical and scientific communities prior to the 1918 uh, pandemic um, and how the emergence of that modern medicine uh, kind of how that interacted with the 1918 sure, pandemic? Sure. Well, for us, you know, medicine didn't change for almost 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look early in the 19th century, and and people were still leading their patients. Mm -hmm. uh, but meta science came to medicine really in in France in the early part of the 19th century when they started to correlate results with treatments and realize that bleeding and some other not stuff <laughs> did more harm than good. Um, and at the same time, you have um, development of microscopes, great advances uh, in chemistry and so forth and so on. And in Europe, you know, they were making enormous advances, Pasteur around the middle part of the 19th century and so forth. But in the United States, this was not happening. Uh, the U.S. medicine trailed far behind the rest of the world for a variety of reasons we don't have time to get into. Uh, but just to give you a sense of how bad it was, in the 1870s, nobody at Harvard Medical School, none of the faculty knew how to use a microscope. Mm -hmm. And you could, all, you, all your courses, if you were a student, were lectures. You never saw a patient. You could fail four out of nine courses at Harvard and still get an MD. Uh, that reform, there was reform when one 
recent graduate killed several patients in a row because he didn't know the lethal dose of uh, morphine. Uh, and uh, John, the founding of Johns Hopkins, and, and incidentally, virtually all medical faculty were paid entirely. Their money came out of student fees, so they had every reason to accept somebody into the medical school. Mm -hmm. So there were essentially no qualifications required. Uh, Johns Hopkins University was founded on a, on a European, really a German model of rigor and science. And the med school was founded in 1891. Its first dean was a guy named William Welsh, who is easily the most important person in the history of American medicine, arguably the most important person in the history of American science. And Hopkins was rigorous, was scientific, essentially forced other leading medical schools like Harvard, Columbia, Penn, Michigan uh, to compete with Hopkins for students and for advances. And uh, then in 1910, there was something called the Flexner Report, uh, written by Abraham Flexner, who founded the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton later. And Flexner was a protege of Welsh. And he went around to all the med schools in the country and wrote a scathing report that got tremendous publicity uh, about how bad they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and overnight, overnight, uh, you know, roughly half the med schools in the country shut down. Uh, and meanwhile, there had already been the best med schools were by then competing with Hopkins. And it's remarkable how quickly American medicine caught up to Europe and became equal to the best in the world. And right now, of course, there are no bad med schools in the United States. Some are better than others, but they're all good. Yeah. Uh, and that's a direct outgrowth of Hopkins and the Flexner Report in 1910. Do you think that the pandemic itself really expedited the importance of medicine and science to elevate that community to a different level than it was before? Well, I think the, the uh, pandemic had impact, but I think that process was already underway and had largely been accomplished. Mm -hmm. uh, the impact had, just like today, every medical scientist in the world largely turned their attention to the pandemic. Uh, and that pandemic moved much more quickly than what we were going through, mm -hmm. uh, much more quickly. We we're talking about a period of weeks, really. Where, where, so they didn't have time, nor will we today, in something that moved that fast, uh, to make any advances really during the pandemic. But the outgrowth of the research uh, was extraordinary, although it didn't come for several years. Uh, you know, something as basic as figuring out what a virus was. In 1918, they used the term virus, but they applied that generally to bacteria, to really to any infectious organism was called a virus. Right. They knew that there were, they called them filterable viruses, that they were so small, smaller than any bacteria, they would pass through the smallest filters they had. But they didn't know if they were a different kind of organism or just a really tiny bacteria. Mm -hmm. 
and they figured out, and I think the research was certainly uh, uh, sped up by the pandemic. They, uh, you know, a guy named Thomas Rivers, a Hopkins grad, uh, figured that out in 1925 and launched really the field of virology. Mm-hmm. And probably the most important finding in the 20th century in, in the biological sciences also came out of research on the pandemic, although it didn't uh, wasn't discovered until 1944. Um, that was a guy named Oswald Avery, who's a major player in the book and a personal inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Avery figured out that DNA carried the genetic code, which was very controversial at the time. Right. In fact, Avery was being considered for the Nobel Prize, and they didn't give him the prize because I mean, for for other work, uh, for his lifelong contribution to immunology, they didn't give him the prize because this finding was so controversial, and they don't didn't want to. The prize committee didn't want to endorse it. Of course, he was right. He never sure. did get the prize. I think he's probably the most deserving of the prize, and who, who never did receive it. So, the science that came out of the pandemic, I think, was are obviously hugely important. Uh, but nothing occurred fast enough to really affect the course of the disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the more important moments in the book um, was when you talked about the origins of the 1918 flu. Um, according to the, your research, a significant flu breakout began in Fort Riley, Kansas, where more than 100 soldiers were infected. And then at the height of World War I, the virus began to spread rapidly across Europe with the arrival of American soldiers. So can you tell us a little bit about why history called the 1918 pandemic not the Rock Chalk Jayhawk flu, right, <laughs> but the Spanish <laughs> flu? Well, Spain was not at war. And you know, all the countries that were at war either censored their press or in the United States, it was self-censorship. Uh, they didn't want to say anything that might hurt morale or be depressing to people, so they didn't write anything about it. S- Spain, they did write about it because they, they weren't fighting. Also, the king got sick, and it became known as Spanish flu. Where it actually did begin, we have no idea. It could have been Kansas. Uh, you know, the book came out in 2004. My own views actually have shifted. I think Kansas remains a possibility, not not Fort Riley so much as a rural uh, part of Kansas, Haskell, which is a few hundred miles from Fort Riley. But I think right now, more likely China. Other people think France. Other people think Vietnam. I think uh, New York City even might be on that spectrum of possibilities. We'll never know where it started. It could have started anywhere. Uh, you know, I do think the war accelerated spread, uh, but I don't think it was a major factor in anything other than the speed of which the virus spread throughout Western Europe. Uh, you, know, you know, it got it, it killed fifty to one hundred million people in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you adjust for population, that's 225 to 450 million people today. Right. So even the worst, worst case scenarios and projections for this virus don't even begin 
to approach those kinds of numbers, thank God. But, you know, most of the world outside Western Europe was not at war. And that's where most of the deaths were. Uh, so again, the, I think the most of the observers at the time, including a Nobel laureate whom I have great regard for, having read a lot of his work, you know, believe that the disease did move to Europe from the United States. It could have happened another way. He could have been wrong, as could the others. Uh, but it would have happened anyway. Sure. Uh, just would have been a little bit slower. Yeah. Even if, even if they were right. Now, now, John, you mentioned kind of the the reasoning, the historical reasoning for why it's called the Spanish flu, especially because the uh, nations that were at war uh, often did not want uh, any information that would limit morale uh, or be destructive to the cause. Um, you know, another significant point in the book is how some national and local governments responded uh, to the pandemic. Some, like Kansas City, for example, uh, other cities, I think San Francisco, uh, clamped down, uh, took precautions uh, requiring people to, you know, stay at home, right. shutting down businesses, mask wearing. But then some did not, and a perfect example of that, of that was Philadelphia. Uh, uh, they were late to the game, uh, but it was it, it would already spread too it spread too quickly, uh, such as parades and other events ramped up the the spread of uh, the flu. Um, do you see any parallels with what happened back in 1918 to today, and Absolutely. this this averse yeah. reaction to taking precautions in the spread of the flu? Uh, I mean, it just it, it really does astound me. So I'm going to let you take it from there. Okay. Well, first, as you said in the introduction, uh, I was asked to participate in the early conceptualizing of a pandemic preparedness plan under George W. Bush. Uh, I was asked because of my knowledge of 1918. The uh, There are two lessons that came out of 1918. Number one, tell the truth. That's the most important. Uh, when you are, when your only weapon is going to be some kind of public health measures, that involves the public. And if you expect the public to do it, then they need to trust you. And if you don't trust them, they're not going to trust you. So tell the truth. Uh, the cities that did tell the truth functioned much better in 1918. It, and it unfortunately was fairly unusual. Uh, that's the number one lesson. And I think the what's happened around the world in the last eight or 10 months at this point, uh, countries that have, have told the truth have done much, much, much better than countries that did not tell the truth. Um, the second lesson from 1918 is the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions. What do you do when you don't have any drugs? Mm -hmm. And these are the public health measures. Um, you know, studies of 1918 did demonstrate that the cities that enforced measures, public, the same things we're talking about today, did much better than cities that did not. Uh, in addition, just earlier this year, one of the Federal Reserve Banks did a study 
of the economic impact of these measures and discovered that the cities that were closed closed earlier and were closed for a longer period of time actually had a much better economic recovery than cities that did not. Uh, you know, so, you know, the, in 1918, that virus was much more virulent, much deadlier than what we're doing, than we're living with today. Um, in addition, 95% of the excess mortality in 1918 was people younger than 65, which is not only the opposite of today, but it's unusual for influenza generally. Uh, you know, the peak age for death was 28. So you didn't have the generational warfare mm -hmm. that we're seeing now. We also didn't have any partisan warfare. There was some pushback against the idea of closing things down, but it only came from the business community. It did not come from, you know, from any political party. It was is unrelated to, to partisanship. Uh, so I guess I hope I answered your, yeah, your question and sure. how do you follow up. Yeah. Um, Autumn, let's do this. Let's skip down to let's skip down to what parallels that we see. Well, yeah, I mean there are plenty of parallels. Number one, you know, to start with, in both cases you have an animal virus jumping species to humans, uh, spreading very rapidly. They're both respiratory viruses. Uh, they spread exactly the same way, uh, primarily droplets. Uh, also airborne, which the difference between droplets and airborne is really the size. Droplets are what they sound like. They droplets, they fall to the ground pretty rapidly in a matter, sometimes in a matter of seconds, larger ones, a few minutes, but airborne are really small particles that can float in the air for hours. Uh, you could also get it, although it's unusual for COVID-19 from touching something, somebody coughs on it, opens the door, Cross in their hand, opens the door, you come along an hour later, open the door, and then rub your eyes or yawn, cover your mouth, and you've transmitted the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, that happens much less often in COVID-19, we have now found. Uh, so the spread is similar. The, the, the other thing that's very similar I mentioned earlier is the pathology. One of the most unusual things about COVID-19 is uh, that in infects or affects, we don't know if it's the virus or the, the response of the body that's doing this, it affects practically every organ in the body. The same thing occurred in 1918. Yeah. Both of these things are quite unusual. Uh, and, you know, that was one of know, the most, go ahead. That was one of the most interesting sections of the book, John, was when you would detail some of the strange, and I mean strange symptoms that some of the carriers of this virus had back in 1918. And you're hearing similar uh, similar details today that, yeah, there's the normal flu-like symptoms, but people are having these pains. The strangest one I read in your book was the popping sound. Uh, that nurses right. described yeah. uh, coming from the skin and said to, you know, for the rest of their life, they couldn't When you eat. rolled, right, when you rolled someone over, uh, 
because air had escaped. It was the uh, nurse that I quoted referred to it as a crackling, like like stepping on bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. You know, she was speaking decades later when bubble wrap came into an existence, and she was carrying comparing the sounds of the lungs to uh, when you rolled somebody over to bubble wrap, when you stepped on bubble wrap and it popped. Uh, you know, some of the most frightening symptoms in 1918. Uh, People were turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen. I quoted one physician saying he couldn't tell African-Americans from whites because their pallor was so similar. Uh, And that, of course, spread rumors of the Black Plague. Uh, And even scarier than that would probably be bleeding not only from the nose, which was actually quite common in some cases, 15% of patients in the military were in some bases, they were kind of where the data is very reliable, uh, had nosebleed. But people could also bleed from not just their mouth too, but even their eyes and ears. Now that's scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so partly because, and people could die in as few as 12 hours after the first symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because of symptoms like that, and because of rapid deaths, because people who were young and otherwise healthy were dropping dead, that's why you did not get the pushback that we're seeing today mm-hmm. when various cities impose control measures. Uh, they didn't really have to close down businesses. Nobody was going anywhere out of fear mm-hmm. uh, because of symptoms like this, because of the large numbers of dead and, and so forth. Yeah. Now, John, we've got one last question that I'm going to ask you here in just a moment. But before we get to that final question, uh, there's something that I just need to ask you. I mean, here we are at the very darkest days of this pandemic with over 3,000 here in the U.S. dying just yesterday. Uh, the numbers continue to escalate. Um, there is hope on the horizon. Uh, hopefully, even uh, late Thursday of this week, uh, FDA may give approval here in the United States for a potential vaccine. Uh, go ahead, and Europe has already uh, begun, with the UK being the first to um, to approve the vaccine. Um, obviously, that is that is extremely hopeful. But the reality is this isn't going away anytime soon. And it's going to take a lot of time for the vaccine to be distributed and for everybody to be inoculated. What can people do right now and what you learned from 1918 and the parallels today? What can people do right now? What is the best way to combat this virus even without a vaccine? Well, it's the same thing that's been recommended from the beginning of this pandemic. It's number one, most important, above everything else, social distancing. You know, I, I go out and my wife and I go get coffee every morning. We go for a walk. Uh, and I walk into the coffee shop. I don't want my wife going in. Uh, you know, I wear a mask at the coffee and then depending on the weather, if I, we can sit right by the, the open door, right next to it, then I'll sit down because that's like being outside. Otherwise, we'll walk and drink our coffee. Uh, but 
and we know everybody in the coffee shop. We're there. We've been there every day for years. You know, they're all our friends. Uh, so you can you can have a normal life. Just be careful. Social distancing is number one, two, and three. Mm. Number four, five, and six is masking. You know, the masks do. It's very clearly demonstrated. Masks help. They are not the be-all and end-all. Nothing is other than complete isolation. Uh, You know, like everyone else at the beginning of this, I said masks for the general public don't uh, aren't useful. That was based on 1918 data. Mm -hmm. The data changed. Even in 1918, they actually ran very careful experiments. They could tell you exactly how far respiratory droplets traveled. They knew in 1918, what we knew at the beginning of this pandemic, if someone who's sick wears a mask, that protects people around them who are well. Mm -hmm. What we didn't know at the beginning of this pandemic, and which is, and, and therefore I and other people in public health were saying, well, the general public shouldn't wear a mask. Uh, because studies in 1918 concluded that they weren't very useful for the general public. But we did not know about asymptomatic transmission, that there was so much of it, mm-hmm. and, and pre-symptomatic mm-hmm. transmission, right. Uh, right. Uh, which is plenty also. Uh, so when that data came in, I and everybody else pretty much in public health changed our recommendations because the information changed. Uh, so anyway, get back to number one is social distancing. You can still social, you know, we have people over for dinner. We've got, and fortunately we're in new Orleans. So usually the weather's pretty good Mm -hmm. outside in our patio. Yeah. We're outside and we are more than six feet apart, more like 10 feet apart, but we're socializing with our friends and that's safe. Yeah. You know, being inside very close to each other without masks is not safe. You know, the third thing, which, again, everybody has heard a hundred times or a thousand by now, wash your hands. That's important. It's not as important as social distancing. It's not as important as masking. And maybe the fourth thing that does not get adequate attention, although people mention it, I think it's much more important and should get much more attention, ventilation, something as simple as opening your doors and windows. Uh, Okay, maybe it gets cold outside. It's a heck of a lot safer if you have your doors and windows open anyway. If you want to have, you know, people over to the house or go over to someone else's houses, open the windows. Okay, you're cold, so wear your coat. (laughs) Right. But, you know, are you, you have a sweater on right now. I know this is only audio, but <laughs> we're over Zoom. Yeah, is sure. where, is, you know, so you, yeah. you're wearing a sweater. Yeah. I don't know if your windows were open. <laughs> you're by yourself anyway. Right, that's right. Uh, well, John, we, you know, so we fully. Four things. Yeah. I would put ventilation maybe ahead of washing your hands. Yeah, and that's Number a good. one, social distancing. Number two, masks. Number three, ventilation. Number four, washing your hands. Yeah. If and, you do that, at the very least, you can protect yourself and your family. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what we thought you were going to say, John, just because you're a smart guy and you wrote an incredible book about uh, the 1918 pandemic. But, uh, you know, in our world, uh, you know, I live in the state or Autumn and I both are living in Oklahoma. We've got uh, employees all across the country and other states. You know, there are still people uh, who walk around maskless. Uh, there are still people who uh, thumb their nose at social distancing, uh, even on a national level, having Christmas parties uh, in closed, confined spaces. And so we just want to continue to reiterate that anybody with a brain knows to social distance, wear a mask, ventilation, as well as washing hands. And, and you heard it right here from John Barry. Those are the things to do to, to help. So with that... Well, I mean, it, yeah, it's unfortunately something as simple as that has been politicized. Yeah. It makes no sense. It doesn't. I mean, why can it, why would anybody, you know, there are laws against smoking cigarettes mm -hmm. inside someone else's space because we know that cigarette smoke can cause cancer, even if you're not smoking it yourself, if you're inhaling it. Right. So we're protecting other people. Yeah. And why is masking any different? We know that seatbelt laws are out there. And in seatbelts, you're only going to hurt yourself, not somebody else. And yet we accept seatbelt laws. Yeah. So in masking, you are going to hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. Why is it a big deal? I mean, that's what freedom is. Freedom is doing what you want until you, the boundary is when you affect someone else's life. That's the boundary of liberty. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Anyway, I like it. Well, Autumn, why don't you go ahead with our last and final question? Okay. So our motto at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about here and your work, uh, what is your more to tell? Well, we, we talked about this off the air, but you already, you already mentioned it earlier in the conversation. You know, I honestly think my best book and I think my most important book is the one that uh, actually <laughs> sold the least, of course, and that's uh, the Roger, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty. Uh, it's my favorite book. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a pretty interesting subject. As you said at the beginning, Mitch, that's how uh, we met. I don't normally get on shows and plug my work. I think it's kind of tacky, uh, <laughs> but I guess I just violated my own rules. <laughs> we asked you. Yeah, we, we asked. asked you. You're not plugging it. You're just answering our question. And I can echo that, John. Okay. That well, links to the book and all of our show notes as well. Yeah, and I can echo John's words okay. without, uh, you know, I mean, he, that book was really amazing. It was central to my doctoral work at Baylor. Um, you know, I'm a church uh church uh, and state separationist, uh, an avid uh, component or proponent of religious liberty and what is happening, what is trying to be passed today for religious liberty is not historically accurate. Um, and, and John's book does a brilliant job talking about Roger Williams and the founders and all of those wonderful people who understood the true meaning of religious liberty and the importance to preserve that liberty, keeping church and state separate. And so I highly recommend that book. If you're going to buy that book, then go ahead and buy The Great Influenza as well, because both of them are excellent, excellent uh, additions to your library. 
John. And if I can add, I'm not going to make a penny if anybody buys the uh, Rod Williams book, even though I, I plugged it. It's not for income. <laughs> Uh, it will never pay the advance back ever. Right, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll never see another another penny from it. But uh, I, I, you know, really do think it's my best book. Yeah, it, it's fantastic, yeah. fantastic. So, well, John Barry, author of two incredible books: uh, "The Great Influenza: The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History" and "Roger Williams: The Creation of the American Soul." Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty. Thank you beyond measure for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And to our audience, we want to thank you for tuning in once again. Until next time, remember, keep practicing good faith. Good faith.